We're nearing the end of our Talking the Talk communication series. And as I was reading the prayer of confession today, I found myself uh, realizing that it's working. That I was reading this confession and was remembering times that I have responded in anger instead of kindness that I have spoken without thinking, that I have torn down my neighbors, that I was confessing these and had a growing desire to speak better. Our hope is that this has been true for you as well, that as we've talked about how we talk, that you've found your desires changing, some of your impulses changing, maybe some tools to help you communicate better. The context for our text this morning is that God has led his people out of slavery in Egypt. Exodus has happened, and they are now wandering in the desert, and things have gotten unpleasant. And as anyone would do, the people have begun complaining. The word the Bible uses is grumbling. And at some point, a line is crossed, and this is what God said. Here now a reading from Numbers 14. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, How long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites. So tell them, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. In this wilderness, your bodies will fall. Every one of you, twenty years old or more, who has counted in the census and who has grumbled against me, not one of you will enter the land I swore with uplifted hands to make your home, except Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and Joshua, son of Nun. As for your children that you said would be taken as a plunder, I will bring them in to enjoy the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your bodies will fall in this desert." Your children will be shepherds here for 40 years, suffering for your unfaithfulness until the last of your bodies lies in the desert. For 40 years, one year for each of the 40 days you explored the land, you will suffer for your sins and know what it is like to have me against you. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will surely do these things to this whole wicked community which has banded together against me. They will meet their end in this wilderness. Here they will die. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. There is something incredibly unpleasant about this passage. It's so serious. Now, God has done plenty of judging and condemning, but in this passage, God has been leading his people to freedom, leading them to this promised land that he's preparing for them, and then he refuses. He refuses. That's it. That was the last straw. Now, no. You guys are going to die in the desert. But what's so hard about this passage, God doesn't refuse because they were afraid. God works with their fear. God doesn't refuse because the people built an idol of gold and began to worship it. Admittedly, God killed a bunch of people for that. But then they got back on the road to the promised land. God doesn't refuse because they started breaking the Sabbath or because they got distracted or because of any other sins they wandered into. God stops leading the Israelites to the promised land because of grumbling. 
Because of grumbling. That's the straw that broke God's back? It began as soon as the people left Egypt. They had been slaves, working under the threat of injury or death, working themselves to death and getting nothing back. And God makes a way for them to be saved from slavery, but the freedom is in the desert. There isn't enough food, it's hot, it's boring, it's dry, it's hard, marching day after day, and for what? And suddenly God's salvation from slavery doesn't really feel like being saved. To God's people, it feels like they traded one list of unpleasant things for another list of unpleasant things, but now in the desert. And honestly, deep in their hearts, they wonder if it's even better. True, they aren't slaves, and that's great. True, they aren't living under daily threat of death. Very nice. But slavery, they at least had homes, and food, and stability. Was that really worse than the desert? And so the people begin to grumble, and they complain. And it's valid stuff. They complain about being thirsty and being hungry and tired and hot and God feeds them and water comes from a rock. But then they keep going and the next day they're tired and they're hungry and they're thirsty. And the Bible tells us there are four million of them. Can you imagine how stuffy that must have been? Can you imagine the smell? Taking a road trip through the desert, without air conditioning, not by yourself, but with your least favorite neighbors, your grumpiest relatives, and on top of them, your rival from high school, and the girl you liked, but she married him instead, and now you're stuck together for days, and then weeks, and then months, and no one showers? And on top of this, you're thirsty, and you're hungry, and you're tired, and you're hot? So what if God sends some birds with a snack? That doesn't really change much. So people grumble. They complain. Of course they do. Of course they do. Because, let me tell you for me, despite what God has done through Jesus Christ, and despite the incredible miracle of his death on the cross, and the power of his blood to wash us of our sins, and the empty tomb, and despite the very Spirit of God living in us, despite all that, When someone is driving in front of me on the highway, going too slow in the passing lane, I can't help it. I grumble. And when my daughter decides to use 14,000 dishes to eat dinner instead of one, and I know that someone, someone is going to have to wash those dishes, I can't help it. And when I can tell my wife knows the thing I should be remembering, but I can't remember, and she sees I can't remember, but isn't just saying what we both know I forgot, I can't help it. (laughs) And when I pick up the phone at the church office, and once again it's someone trying to sell me a software that will launch our church into the 21st century by the power of this app, I can't help it. And when McDonald's messes up my iced coffee for the third time in a row, flavored cream, I didn't ask for flavored cream. And when my internet connection decides it's entitled to union breaks, And when I fire up the grill and dinner is already late and I realize that the propane tank is empty. When life happens, I grumble. I know what Jesus did. 
with the forgiveness and the blood and the empty tomb and the Holy Spirit and all that amazing stuff, but I'm not talking about the amazing stuff. I love the big stuff, the amazing stuff, but it doesn't change the annoyingness of life, of people, of disagreeing, of chewing too loud, of driving too slow. All that stuff is the same, and so I grumble. Which is why this passage is so disconcerting. It wasn't the big sins. It wasn't the golden calf that the people started worshipping. It wasn't the crimes or the doubt or the fears or the disobedience. God's people grumbled. They grumbled. And in response to the grumbling... God says, how long will this wicked community grumble against me? I have heard the complaints of these grumbling Israelites, so tell them. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do to you the very thing I heard you say. And none of those who grumbled, none of them, are allowed to enter the promised land. For grumbling... So either God is just arbitrary or there's something about grumbling. Not something uniquely evil or horrible. There are worse sins in whatever way some sins are worse than others. But there's something about grumbling that undercuts life. The word for grumbling is really important. It's also the word for dwell or live. It's the same word. In Hebrew, what it literally says when it says the people grumbled, it says that God's people were living in it. They are living in their disappointment. They are living in the frustration. They are living in what's wrong. That's grumbling. It's living in it. Now always and forever until we die, life will carry side by side the blessings and the disappointments. God's people are in freedom with their families, but they are hungry. They are being led by God to a promised land, but they are in the desert. They are being protected, but they are surrounded by enemies. And they are with God, but they are also with their grumpy relative and their crazy neighbor. Side by side. Our lives as well. Always, until the day we die, the blessings and the frustrations. Grumbling is living in what's wrong. It's a way of telling our story, telling the story of what's going on around us. And the opposite of grumbling isn't being positive. There are things wrong with the world. There are things that are broken, heartbreaking, life-shaking things that we should weep over. And there are the minor annoyances that drive us crazy. And often those are the things that lead to the grumbling. Micah and I were working in the front yard yesterday and I realized I was being a pill. Short, frustrated, distracted, After realizing this, I was assessing myself, why was this happening? 
And it wasn't my dad's heart attack this May. It wasn't the adoption last October. It wasn't being busy at work or the new home. It was none of the big stuff. It was the mosquitoes. They were driving me nuts. I couldn't stop thinking about them. I was living in the frustration of being eaten alive. I was living in it, and I was dwelling on it. So any time anything else grabbed my attention, I responded from the mosquitoes. Brian, did you get the weeds by the garage? Of course I didn't. Can't you see I'm waging war with this bush? (laughs) Trimming the bush was not especially difficult. Micah's request was not unreasonable. But I was not living in a reasonable world. I was living in the world of the mosquitoes. Living in how annoying they were with the biting and the nipping and the swatting and the itching. And I was grumbling. I was living in what was wrong. And the opposite of grumbling isn't just being positive. It isn't saying, my gosh, how wonderful God is to have made these little bloodsuckers that leave a present of itchy poison so I can mark the trail of where they visited me. Oh, what a joy. One of them has snuck into my shirt and is working down my back. What a blessing. The opposite of grumbling isn't just being naively positive. Grumbling is living in it. The opposite is choosing to move on. Now, grumbling can sometimes travel under the disguise of being realistic. I'm just being honest. I'm just sharing what I've seen or what I've heard. I'm just telling the truth. But the difference between grumbling and being realistic is that being realistic identifies the problem with the intention of moving on. Grumbling identifies the problem with the intention to build a house and live in it. If you're being eaten to death by mosquitoes, by all means, complain. Man, these bugs are terrible. And then, get some bug spray. Put on long sleeves. Move the outdoor project to the next morning. At the very least, get some water and reset your brain. But don't live in it. Because there's something about grumbling. Not something terrible or horrible or more evil than other sins, but something about it that under cuts life. It's a choice to live in what's wrong. A choice to let the world be defined by what's missing, what's broken, instead of what's growing, what's resurrecting, what's powerful and inspiring and true. There's something about grumbling that undercuts life, and not just for the grumbler. Grumbling is contagious. You can watch it take over a group. You can watch it take over the Israelites. Someone started it, grumbling. They pulled out the list of everything that was wrong. Chances are, every item on the list was true. And people listened, and you sympathize, and you keep moving. But then if someone pulls out the list again, and then pulls it again, and pulls it again, and we just look at our families, at our work, at our lives, through everything that's wrong paying attention to the world, looking through the list, then we're looking for what's wrong. And we will find it. And then, and then, you're turning to everyone around you with a giant highlighter saying, look here, this is wrong. 
And so it goes. Grumbling undercuts life. It did for the Israelites. It did for the Israelites' children. Since they were set on dwelling on everything that was wrong, it wouldn't have mattered if they were living in the promised land, flowing with blessings, they still would have grumbled. And in the grumbling, the promised land wouldn't have been the promised land anymore. It can't be. Because we can't see the blessings. If we grumble, we will not live in the fullness of life at home, at work, or at church. The promised land cannot be the promised land if we spend our lives living in what's wrong. If we spend our lives living in the grumbling. But if we choose to dwell in what God has done, we will live in a land defined by blessings. I can't speak to you of your homes or your work, but I can speak of this church in the last four years. And nothing is perfect. But in the last four years, this church has sent teams to Guatemala, Chicago, and Colombia to proclaim the word of God, to serve children, the homeless, to preach, to teach, to check eyes, to identify infections, to pull teeth. We've started Food for Thought, a food and tutoring program. This church, which is not that large of a church, started a food and tutoring program that was then featured at Rotary and Impact, and then we reinvented it, and now we have two fifth graders so excited about it that they're being carpooled there. We've confirmed 17 youth to being members of our church and added new families from across generations. The member care team has created a vision and a mission to send cards and visit our homebound members on a consistent basis so they know that they're loved and not forgotten and they work to care for our caregivers. We built an administrative building and paid it off. And we bought a new church van and we paid it off. And we bought new AC units and we paid them off. We've been blessed by early morning sunrise Easter services and led and haunting music at Tenebrae services and been filled with joy through joint services with the Methodist Church. We've proclaimed the resurrection for loved ones who have passed on. We've seen church members support each other and support us through dark times and hard transitions. And we've celebrated the birth of children and their baptisms into this house the family of God. And this week, for me, I had six youth boys at the Boys to Men Bible study. Six teenagers at 6.30 in the morning. That's not natural! (laughs) So why would we grumble? If we grumble, we miss out on everything that's going on. If we grumble, we will dwell in the frustration. We will let what is wrong define our lives. Or we can dwell in what God has done, in what God continues to do. We can dwell in the miracles we have witnessed, and we will find a land rich, so rich with blessings. With blessings. If we live... In the grumbling, even the promised land can't be the promised land. But if we dwell in God's incredible work in our lives, we will find a land, a church, a home, a family, a job that is defined by blessings. 
So the choice is ours. Will we live in the promised land or in the desert? Let's pray. Lord, this morning we confess how much easier it is to grumble. There's so much wrong in the world. So often it's the little stuff that gets us. God, in those moments we ask that you would give us an extra dose of your spirit. That we might be people who build each other up, who build up our communities, who identify what is wrong so that we might move forward and who proclaim again and again the things that you are doing, the ways you are resurrecting, the way your kingdom is coming to earth. Because God, we know and here we can see that you are moving and you are working and we give you thanks. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.